Welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. Series 4 Rowing Around in Rama. Episode 2 Imrol Snethus Agus The Island of the Salmon. To travel in the hands of God. To put away the boat's oars and let the undulating waves breathe them where they would. To watch the world's sun light up the broad plain of the sea into molten gold, glittering with sudden sparks of silver, like drowned stars. There was a great peace in this voyage. The monk had found a calmness of spirit, even when the wind rose and stung the waves to roughness. He rested, rocked in simple contemplation. Snagus's stomach rumbled loudly, and MacRiagula looked up, torn from his spiritual musing. Snagus shrugged apologetically. I can't help it, he mumbled. I'm hungry. The Lord God will provide, answered MacRiagula piously, glancing heavenward. He noticed in passing that clouds were beginning to cover the late afternoon sun, and that the golden light was changing to grey. A fresh breeze ruffled his robe. Repressing a shiver, he continued his argument. Oh, were we not led to find a well of pure water so wondrous that it seemed to taste of new milk? But milk is not a meal, and that was yesterday. Then pray that the Lord provides you with something more. MacRigula's tone was stern as he returned to his meditations. The light faded, and the sea grew dim. At twilight it was hard to keep fancies at bay. The dying light patterned the ever-moving sea surface with dappled shadows. Could he be sure that Mananan's marvellous land did not lie hidden in its depths? Did golden apples still dance on silver boughs to the motion of forgotten currents? He dragged his eyes heavenward again to where a gibbous moon, pale and watery, was attempting to tear herself loose from ragged clouds. It would rain this night. MacRiagla went to join his companion under the hide covers that made up all of the shelter this small boat had to offer. Two stomachs rumbled loud and long from out of the darkness. The wonder was there for them with the rising of the sun. It was an island, tree-bearded, edged in golden sand. A fast-flowing river rushed joyfully down a forested hill, disgorging its noisy waters into the sea foam. The boat bobbed and bounced as the two monks guided in the small vessel, beaching it comfortably. On this bright morning, Snegus and MacRiagla gratefully made their morning devotions on dry land. Then they set out to explore this God-gift wonder. Or oh, there was clean, fresh water to be had. They would not go thirsty. There was dead wood, dry and fire-ready. It would be an easy task to make a blaze to warm their salted bones and dry their damp clothes. It would be good to cook a hot meal, if there was just something to cook. Oh, surely God would reward their devotions with... with something. The two men, warmed but hungry, made their way inland, following the tumbling river uphill to where the land was open and unwooded. The terrain grew more rocky as they climbed but the river remained rapid. They were coming to the highest point of the island, almost at its centre. The land rose, suddenly steeper, climbing in a grey-green escarpment that almost seemed to border the hill. 
The sun was higher now, and it was becoming hard to see to pick out details as they peered up to the top of this sharp slope soundwards. Something was glinting, silver in the sunshine. The water tumbled down the rock face, not in one sudden waterfall, but in a series of terraced slopes. A weir. There were clear signs that it had been man-shaped, altered to contain and regulate the flow of the water. And yes, the glinting that had caught their eyes. It was a fence built across the escarpment, almost dividing the island in two halves. But this, this was a fence of silver, all of silver. Who could have built such a marvel? It was then that they perceived the true wonder of the island. For glinting silver in the morning sun came salmon, dancing up the river in rippling strength, leaping against the current. The two monks watched in amazement as fish after fish began a miraculous journey up the tumbling weir, fighting wave after wave of water in their desire to return to the source. Oh, and the size of these magnificent fish! The hungry monks were certain that each, oh, each must be as big as a bull calf! They watched, admiring the determination and power of the creatures as they leapt to their destiny. As a symbol for faith, it was humbling. The two monks looked at each other. They briefly raised their hands to heaven in grateful thanks. Then as one, they stepped into the foaming waters. Two stomachs growled in unison, already anticipating a satisfying meal. Well, welcome to our second, somewhat watery, story archaeological <laughs> trench. Come with this one. We're going to have to stay on dry land for a while yet, aren't we? Uh, yes, we are. This It's all about the background There's to this story. There's a lot of background story. As you might imagine. Well, Yimrov doesn't, Yimrov doesn't make much sense unless we deal with the background story. Exactly, exactly. So um, it's set at a time of great social and political upheaval. Oh yeah, we've got our bunny ears high king. If you want to know we put high king in bunny ears, maybe we'll say that it another time. That means in inverted commas. Okay. King, yes. <laughs> the high king Dovnal Sanvaid has just fought a major battle, hasn't he? Yeah. With Kongal. Kongal Koich? Koich, yes. The Kongal, the one-eyed. Oh yeah, and he's one-eyed for more than one reason. The yeah. interesting thing is there's two stories about how he lost his eye. Yeah, yeah. One of the versions is getting stung in the eye by He also me. gets a chessman thrown in his face. Yes, yes. So he really doesn't have a good time of it, does that So this battle. Yeah, this is the famous battle of Magrath, uh, which is Moira, I think it's at some North in somewhere. the north, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, where uh, Dovnal is at war with Kongal Koich, but Kongal Koich goes off to Scotland and recruits an army from the Dalriada Irish over there. He also gets on board Picts and Sang Saxons and Britons and all the rest it's of it. really weird, isn't it? it a is. load of people from everywhere. Exactly, Come yeah. On. Share this battle with But me. it's a huge battle and Kungal loses in the end. But this is importantly the battle where Sweeney, our mad Sweeney, Swift McGelt, actually goes bonkers. Yeah, and, and that's one of the main reasons. And there's two texts that tell this story, aren't there? There is. There's the one which is just called Kath uh, Magrath, which is the Battle of Myrath. But then there's also a wonderful and bizarre text, which is called Fleth Dunmangade, which is the feast of uh, the Fortress of Geese. Yeah, we'll take bits of both to yeah. give us our background exactly, in, in this yeah, story. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are some strange stories concerning Dolphin in, in, well, both texts. Yeah. But in the first text, 
in the one, the main one about the battle. I love the way he spends, he's supposed to spend three days on mm. the battle in his tent yes. playing chess. Yeah. With a dwarf on the lookout, because yeah. dwarves are supposed to be very good to look at on yes. something. Yes. Um, and he's supposed to be praying, but he's actually playing chess. That's how I read it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think the thing is that in the two texts you get very similar descriptions but you know in one of them he's playing chess in another one he's devoutly praying well Congle thinks he's devoutly yeah, praying yeah, yeah. in fact in one of the texts I can't remember which one he, he even considers paying a visit to his devout en enemy yes yes well all the armies of both this island and the, the island of Britain doesn't do Congle any good at all he's utterly routed he's put to death and yeah it never works <laughs> out very well yeah he's dead uh, you know, it's troubling. I feel sorry for Congo. Mm. You know, if you read both in both stories, effectively, he's a good friend of of Dovnor. Of course, and he becomes the the designated rebel yes. in the same way as you have a designated driver. driver. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, in this story, Congo, I'm sorry to tell you, but you're going to be the rebel now. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and especially in that second story from in, the other from yeah, the second the text, right? which is wonderfully bizarre and just it's uh, utterly bizarre it's a very entertaining read but uh, this whole business of the Dunlangade it's almost like a background to the battle and why Congo ends up going up against his the you know beloved Dovnall um, basically Dovnall is having a feast at yeah. Tara as you do but he specifically wants goose eggs yeah. and this I think is the Dunlangade bit the gade there are geese the feast of the geese yes yeah, yeah. Um, so, but he steals the goose eggs off a saint who spends <laughs> all day up to his oxters standing in the water. <laughs> the bit boy, like, I think. A bit like St. Kevin does. He's a Glendalough, isn't he? Glendalough, yeah, yeah. yeah. And he stands in the water so long that a bird nests in his upraised arm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a bit like that, but it's only, you know, sort of on a daily basis. I don't think he stays No, he long comes enough. back at night, exactly, he? And yeah. expects a goose egg. Yeah, uh, but there's his geese eggs gone um and he curses the eggs i think there's a dozen of them that have been taken and he curses them so that whoever eats the first one of those eggs is going to be a rebel is going to be a judas yes. and betray the high king and That's there will right. be a great battle but the trouble is when when they discover that he's eaten one of the eggs yes i think in the first version he just eats one of the eggs and dovnall gets really upset and yeah more on him well exactly for eating well, an egg yeah well there's all this thing about reparation and taking something without asking for it but it escalates incredibly quickly yeah but so, there's this, this business of the saint's curse though is really nice look i really like you dovnall i don't want to be a rebel yeah so can we get rid of the curse yeah and just like Sleeping Beauty, yeah. and they call in 12 saints. Yes. Like, oh, fairy godmothers. Yeah, yeah. To see if they can come and take the curse off. Yeah, them. yeah. And they all fail. I know. <laughs> so poor Coggle has to go away and be a rebel. Yeah, yeah, whether he uh, likes it or not. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's absolutely mad. You yeah. know, it's almost like he's been got at by the cycle. Yes. Sorry. <laughs> nerd alert, that. nerd alert. Yes. Yeah, Babylon 5 reference. Yes, he, he, yes. he's basically, he's been designated as the, the uh, agent provocateur. And he has so, no choice. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's an amazing story. Mm. Now, I think it's very interesting for the purposes of our team of the Imrava that this battle, as well as spawning the Imrav we're going to talk about, also spawns the story of Swift and Gelt, of, of Mad Sweeney or Sweeney Astray, um, which is that Swivna Sweeney as a battle captain yeah. through what happens on the battlefield he goes mad and he goes out into the wilderness it's a yeah. kind of an exile from you know the the heart of organized 
community. Yeah. And he goes and it's, you know, he's there's all kinds of wonderful poetry that's attributed to him. Seamus Heaney has done a wonderful yeah. version of Old Sweeney Estray, a poem cycle. swept by the winds of yeah. fate in a way. Yes, yeah. yeah. But, you know, he spends time among the birds and in the treetops and all the rest of it. Um, and he's friends with St Mulling. There's more than one story of these Gelti, these uh, madmen out in the wilderness. And often at the end of the story, they can be brought back in to society and the community. Mm. Although, interestingly, Swivna doesn't. Mm. He doesn't mm. come back. Maling is trying to, you know, calm him down and bring him back into the fold, as it were. But Swivna goes off and stays out in the wilderness. Mm. And it, it has a similarity to the forms of the Imrova, yeah, where, it, you know, people are... are you know, set out into the sea for one reason or another, into this wilderness, have all of these, you know, supernatural experiences. Um, and then some of them can come back. Like Bran last time, he managed to not exactly come back, but tell his story mm -hmm. and then go away again. But he cannot come back. No, exactly, exactly. Yeah. You know, these stories must have continued after you find them throughout the Arthurian. Mm, mm. cycle that's yes. what happens to Lancelot yes yeah he goes mad and is sent out into the wilderness yes. and has all these supernatural adventures mm. and is finally in some ways drawn back mm, mm. but he's never quite the same again. exactly exactly and that's the point is that they're never the same again mm. so yeah so I thought that, that was very interesting that we've got Swivna on the one hand and then we've got uh, the men of Ross who mm, we're going mm, to meet today mm. on the other and uh, I think there's a very close connection between the Gelty stories and the Emerald. It's interesting. Mm. So in you know, on the, the great plain of the wilderness mm. and the great plain of the, the sea. sea. Yeah. They yeah. are they are both seen as wilderness spaces, yeah. The unknown. Yes, absolutely. But I mean, not all of the stories get remembered, you know, or retold. There's a wonderful image at the end of this great battle, which has, you know, torn the country asunder and all the rest of it, that uh, one of Congo's poets or advisors. Oh, yeah, the poets! Yeah, but he survives the battle and he flies off back to Scotland, but he's got a dead warrior tied to each leg. Yeah, and apparently Congal has tied his warriors together. Yeah. Whether this stopped them running away or what on earth is going on? Why has he tied his warriors together? <laughs> it's quite bizarre. I had to wonder whether this was perhaps suggested by some wordplay yeah. that there's an Irish term for tying together or you know tangled together which is kengal and it might ah. be a pun on kungal you know even though what kungal means is it means what hound valor or whatever um but i i wonder whether that was a pun that they went oh there's got to be something who, who are we tied together i know a poet of two dead warriors that's fine <laughs> <laughs> so it's just yeah well after all he was entangled in his own story exactly really, yeah died yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it's it's odd, really, considering these are called the histories yeah. of the annals, you know, mm. of the kings and so forth. Mm. There's a lot of absurdities and bizarre qualities to these stories, aren't there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, again, it's slightly problematic. They have been treated in the past as histories, and they are set as histories. So these are particularly the sort yeah. of so-called cycle of the kings are often kind of people try to match them up with the annals and so on. But I think that there's there's some interesting stuff going on we'll have to come back to it later yeah the i think there's discussion. a lot i think there's yeah. a lot to talk about here yeah. because we really need to get to our story I know, yes. and this is where our story truly begins yes. in the complicated aftermath of the battle yes and one of the notable things is that dovnal this so-called high king 
does something incredibly unusual. What, you mean he dies? Yes, <laughs> but he dies of old age. <laughs> he dies of natural causes. You and know? that's unusual, isn't that's it? That's very unusual yeah. for a well, king. Well, I suppose he does sit in his tent for the whole of the battle, yes. which suggests he's... Uh, you know, well, that's getting not, old. Yeah, well, it's the same as said of Brian Baru, after all, at Clontarf, you know, that he was back in his tent. But that well, that's stop what him it, getting reminded, killed. Yeah. it reminded me of the story of Brian Baru. Yeah. Though I don't know that Brian Baru sat in his tent and played chess for three days. Well, no, but <laughs> who knows what generals do in their well, tents. Anyway, yeah. he dies of old age. He dies of old age. And when he does so, it leaves a power vacuum. Um, and the kingship is taken over between his two nephews, between Fiacha and Dunacha. And uh, Fiacha has a sort of a more southern yeah. um, jurisdiction. Um, Dunacha is mostly sort of Donegal area. So they take over half of the kingdom. Exactly, they've really, split it they? between them, yeah. And they're sons of Mylecova, who is supposed to be Dovnall's brother, I think. These are all, they're all very inbred families, if you don't mind me saying. Um, so, but one of the things within Fiacha's territory mm. is that there are areas or populations who haven't been under the kingship before. And one, one of these is the men of Ross. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. These are these are the people around whom this Imrov revolves. Are the men of Ross? And um, now it, they may be, they're definitely a population group. Yeah. Um, but the, I sort of feel like they might not be tied to a specific geographical territory. Their territory is supposed to run from like parts of Monaghan, then into parts of Louth and Armagh, sort of quite a wide swathe across what what's now the border. It's a huge area to take <coughs> over. It is a huge area, and that's why I wondered whether they might, in fact, be a sort of an outsider group, yeah, you know, yeah. who, who don't have a specific territory. And of course, they 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 don't even they're not even good regional kings for them, are they? They treat no, them really, really badly. They do, yeah. I mean, the men of Ross are given a very hard time. You know, they're and it says specifically that they're not allowed coloured clothing and they're not allowed to carry weapons. Now the second makes sense. The weapons, yes, of course. But why the coloured clothing? Well, this is again, this is status stuff that's going on here. Um, and their whatever their status was before this, under Fieca, they are an absolute, you know, outsider group. They've no sort of legal status or capacity. Um, in many ways, it's possible they'd be treated as prisoners of war, mm -hmm. um, which often then goes into sort of slavery. Yeah, I wondered about that, mm -hmm. whether they're almost treated like a sort of slave group or exactly. at least a, a, a vassal group yeah. of, of no... You know, yeah, exactly. They're, they're treated like slaves. Yeah, and so they're, they're non-people in the legal sense. Which would allow them not to have any colour. They can't, you exactly. know, that thing about whether you can have one colour in your clothes yes. or two or three or king has what was yes, it? Seven, like or seven or eight. Or eight. Yeah. Now I'm not sure about the, the accuracy of that kind of scale, but yeah. certainly the richer you were, the more colours you could afford, you know, because as we know, um, in everything there are more expensive colours, mm -hmm. you know, there's, whether it's lapis blue or whether it's saffron. Yeah, saffron, yellow. saffron yellow was yeah. right at the top. Yeah, or whether it's rosemary or red, you know, mm. uh, every culture will have its expensive colours that then become yeah. associated with high status. So the trouble is that uh, Fierke doesn't then give up. He really goes for it. After I that, know, yeah. He? He, he he kind of rubs their faces in it, which is never a very good idea. It's a horrible story, this yeah. one about, uh, so at the end of the year, when he mm. comes to the mouth of the boy, and then they gathers all the men of Ross together. Yeah. And he does something, he says, look, you're not doing enough work. Mm. You know, I want more, I expect more from you. Yes. And they go, but we can't do any more. Yeah, yeah. And then he has this really odd thing. He says, you know, let each of you in turn spit into my hand. Yeah. 
and they spit into his hand mm. and uh, there's blood in the spittle. Yeah, it says it's half blood and half spit, I think. And he it. says, no, you aren't working for me properly yeah. until it's all blood. I know. You know, I don't think he's trying to say you've all got TB. So what's <laughs> going on? <laughs> well, it's, it is symbolic, you know, it's that whole sort of... Uh, I want to work you to death. Exactly. I think that's I've a, only half worked you to death. I think that's effectively what he's saying, you know. Yeah. Especially when he gives them his next task. And what he says yes. he wants them to do mm. is to, to level the hills yes. and forest the plains. Yeah. Now, that's a very familiar sounding task. We've come across those before. It's, it's usually the other way around, isn't mm. it? It's usually the task is to rid the, the plane. Yeah, to clear course, a plane. clear the plane. Yeah, yeah. He's almost saying, I want you to do the impossible mm. and put it back. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the you know, the, it's so obvious that you can clear a plane mm. comparatively quickly. Yeah, yeah. But growing trees to reforest is yeah, going yeah. to take an impossible, it'll take more than your lifetime. Exactly, yeah. So he's actually saying to them, you cannot possibly succeed in exactly. the task I'm going to give you. Yes, yeah. And again, we, we've met the, the impossible task before. You know, it's no different than the sending off uh, the sons of Tyran, you know, to go and fulfil a task that will kill them. But I find it really interesting that it is this task of changing the landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, because as, as we've said before, this is something that the Dagda does, you know, in, in the sort of mythological uh, context. And Mither does it though he struggles yeah, with Mither it. Yeah, Mither struggled with it and he's one of the the, uh, the two of the day, you know. So. It's a bit like, yeah, as you say, a, a sort of, um, it's a folktale task, mm. a fairy tale task. So mm. I mean, think of Rumpelstiltskin. Yeah, yeah. Rumpelstiltskin, if I can say it rightly. <laughs> Spitting straw to gold. Exactly, The yes. only way you can do this mm. is to get other world help. Exactly, As, yeah. of course, um, you know, Mither. Yes, yeah, Mither. other world help. Yeah, exactly. And even he needs other world help to do it, so. And he can't be done. Exactly. So, yeah, this this does have the feeling of, you know, setting tasks that will effectively kill them all or wipe them out. So what they do? They rebel! Of course they I do. I love the way they rebel. Yes. Well, the deer distracts the king's guard and yeah. the men of Ross take their chance and they kill Figra with his own weapon. Absolutely. But yeah. it's all as though, almost as if he's taunted them with demands for work mm. uh, requiring otherworld help. Mm. And the otherworld has responded. Yeah. You know, the deer, the deer is often right. another world symbol. Absolutely. You yeah, know, the yeah. deer out of the thicket. <laughs> yeah. And suddenly this gives them the opportunity yeah. uh, and they take this otherworld portent mm. And go with it. Yeah, they take the opportunity. Because, yeah, it's all of the King's Guard have just gone, Oh, look, a deer! And rushed off. <laughs> yeah, sort of ADD. Oh, look, yeah. a honey rabbit! <laughs> exactly. Squirrel! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. So, you know, but the, uh, but it, they've left Fiaka behind. Um, and, yeah, so now there are more of the, the slaves than there Sorry, are of the master. Got this image of squirrel! <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And all the guards turn around and, yeah, ah, and they're gone. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so, it's really good, though. Yeah, and w would you blame them for, for taking that opportunity? Yeah, but you know? uh, I'm afraid, um, you know, the reprisals are pretty nasty. Uh, yes, they're they're quite extreme, as you might expect. Dunnaka does not take the killing of his brother lightly. Um, and so over he trots from Donegal and he collects up all the men of Ross, the entire group. You can't imagine that every single one of them, you know, killed the king. Otherwise, you know, they'd have to stand in a long queue. But nonetheless, he gathers all of them up and he puts them inside a house uh, that he's going to set on fire. And this suggests, um, it supports your idea earlier on that this is a small population group. Rather Possibly. than a, 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 a geographical a area. Geographical people. That's, yeah, that's what makes me think of it. But again, it's, they are outsiders, you know, mm -hmm. whether they were before or not. They are definitely outsiders under this regime. 
Um, so they have no legal status, mm. um, which means they can't pay reparation. But also, it's very difficult to pay reparation for a king. It's a harsh punishment, though. It is harsh. It is harsh. Um, and indeed, Dolcha uh, ends up having second thoughts about it. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's, it just just struck me that when I first read this, mm. I thought it must it meant that he took the guard, the ones who'd been with the yeah, guards, yeah. and put them in a house to mm. be burnt. Mm. It's not quite clear. It's not really. And again, they're they're just called the Men of Ross. We're not given any kind of so individual maybe characters. The group who were involved in the mm. incident from the Men of yeah, Ross, yeah. or maybe the whole lot. Exactly. Which just seems odd to be able to put all of them in a house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, you have this thing of kinship responsibility you know so the entire population or you know extended family has responsibility for what a few of them have done but you know it's not the first time I've come across that motive no that sort of being burning in the house yeah yeah, yeah in the Mesca Ullad which is another wonderfully entertaining tale the drunkenness or the intoxication of the Ulsterman yeah. um, basically Cuchulain and De Lads have gone on a massive <laughs> bender all over the country and leaving nothing but destruction in their wake basically looking for more drink I'm sure we've all come across people like that who will just sort of no 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 we haven't got hangovers this morning we've recovered from last night <laughs> No, I only had two beers yeah. last night. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, Cuchulain and Lads are, you know, being very troublesome. And so I think it's in, I can't remember whether now it's in Kerry or it's in Connacht, but one group, anyway, they, they're a bit sort of fed up. They can't do anything with this band of, you know, heavily weaponed drunkards. So they, they say, oh, look, we've built a special house for you. Look, it's all <laughs> iron. Mmm, shiny, shiny. And so sort of put them all in there, lock the door and then light a fire underneath. <laughs> The Iron House, which is very elaborate, but <laughs> but it's for a different reason in that yeah, case. It's not really connected, that, is it? No, well, it's the motif is the same, and that yeah. that may be important. I mean, in, in the Mesca Olad, it seems to be the only way to actually contain these larger than life warrior heroes, you know, who nobody could possibly you, you couldn't go up against them. Yeah, exactly. And you couldn't go up against them in a fight, you know. So yeah, instead, let's just put, push them all in the oven. <laughs> But yeah. whatever, I mean, uh, yeah, like the witch in Hansel and, Gre Hansel and Gretel, Gretel, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Must be pretty big oven, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, I mean, it's true what you were saying about his brother. He does have second thoughts. Mm. And this is where Colm Kill gets crowbarred in. Yes, yes. That um, Donica does wonder about, you know, genocide. The of what he's doing, yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, and so That's he goes, nice of him. Yeah, yeah. So he goes, oh, no, wouldn't be right for me to do this without consulting my Anamkara. Yeah. My soul friend, uh, Colin Kill. Yeah. Um, now, Colin Kill is already off in his uh, Iona um, monastery. He's not actually in Ireland. So messages have to be sent to him in order to get his uh, recommendation on what should and be done. A couple turn up. Yeah. This is where we get to meet our this, heroes. There's a Snagus and Magriagla. They're sent from Colm Kill's monastery um, in order to deliver his verdict, basically, um, and say, no, you shouldn't burn them all alive, but instead you need to pick 60 couples out of the whole of the Men of Ross. It doesn't say how they would be picked or whether there was any rhyme or reason. 60 couples, and it's Lawnovna, which are married couples. Yeah. Um, and they should be set adrift. I think that supports the idea it was the, the ones who were with the King's Guard. Mm, mm. But then later on, yeah. 60 random couples yeah, were chosen. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's it's very odd. And they're to be set adrift. Yes, exactly. All in little boats off in the Atlantic Ocean. And each couple in a separate small boat. I think so. Again, it's not yeah. that precise, but it does say small boats and it does talk about married couples. So you could imagine that they're scattered on the sea, each couple in one little very boat. Very strange, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, we, here we are with this setting adrift punishment. Yes. Again. Where does it come from? Where does this actually begin? Well, um, I think I've been looking at it. I might slightly have to correct what I said before. It is a peculiarly Irish punishment, but it does seem to have come in with the early canon law, the church laws. Mm -hmm. um, now, again, there's a very it's very interesting to look at the way that the Irish sort of melded native law and canon law. Um, there's that story I think I've quoted before about how St. Patrick looked at both of the law systems and anything that were absolutely contradictory he got rid of the native version and used the canon law, mm -hmm. but everything else stayed. Mm -hmm. um, but the setting adrift does seem to have come in with the canon laws. In native law, the, the scale of punishment, if you like, is that the first recourse is to pay a fine. Mm -hmm. And that includes for murder. You know, that includes for uh, some very serious ones. It's a high fine, but it's still a fine. So that's kind of the first recourse. If you can't pay a fine, then the next step is essentially that you go into surest, or you go into kind of slavery. So mm -hmm. you're uh, you go into service and you serve the people that you've wronged. Um, we kind of crossed that before when we talked about Fergus yeah, McLeod. Yeah, yeah. um, so and that could be a lifetime's service. Um, but if you can't pay the fine and if you can't sort of give your service it's in that way, then you can be put to death. Um, although usually the putting to death is by the wronged family, yeah, yeah, you know, and in fact, even if you go into service in them, it's kind of up to them whether they kill you or not. Yeah, yeah. But some of the methods of death, they all seem to be ones from which you can be ransomed, mm -hmm. you know, so someone else can come and pay your bail. Yeah, exactly. And there's recommendations that a king should have among his personal bodyguard. He should have someone he's ransomed from uh, the gallows, someone that he's ra ransomed from the pit, which is another form, and someone that he's ransomed from um, a sort of a violent killing, just stabby, stabby, death, death. Um, because if he's ransomed them, they will defend him. Yeah, all yeah, the closer. Yeah, yeah. So again, it seems to be that while you can have death penalty stuff, there's always an opportunity for yeah. that to be bought off. So this is again why I think that the men of Ross are already in that state of being enslaved or in bondage, yeah. prisoners of war. And I mean, this, this setting adrift is still for kinslaying, isn't it? Yes, it is still for some of the most extreme. It's uh, kinslaying, of course, as we said, is such a difficult crime. Because so you yeah, can't, you can't do the reparation. Exactly. Bit. Yeah, it's the victim. You're, you're paying it to yourself yeah, yeah, or exactly. to your own family. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's one one way that it's used to resolve these issues. It was also used um, for women criminals because uh, the church didn't like the idea of putting women to death. Mm. Um, even though they introduced harsher death sentences for crimes against women. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, I think, very much seen as this way of, you know, we'll put it into the hand of God. God will make the judgment. Mm. If the person washes ashore again, then God has forgiven them. You know, if they die at sea, then God so has punished it's, them. So it's the same process, isn't yeah, it? It's it is, the same yeah. process. Yeah. 
Uh, but it is unfortunately it also connects with trial by ordeal, which is which is very common yeah. like in in most early law systems. There is, is a lot of trial by ordeal, and there it. was some here for again for cases that couldn't be decided yeah, in any other it, way. That's what Henry II was yeah. trying to deal with in England was was creating a trial by jury system. Yes, yeah, yeah. But we're getting off the yeah. But I think I think it's important to understand the context yeah. for these things. You know that uh, here you have a group of people, the men of Ross who already have no status. So they've no possibility of um, paying back. Yeah, yeah. And it's um, paying the honour price for a king is always going to be difficult. So, you know, in a way... They just, be... It's registered. Yeah. So yeah. you're right at the top of the tree anyway. Yeah, exactly. But, well, you know, the monks want in. They're quite happy to take, uh, you know, to sort of take control and give the judgment. Yes. Or Colm Killies. Yes, yeah. So... And, this is where Snegus and MacGregor come in to um, give that advice. Well, before we go on to our Snegus and MacGregor, because mm. they're going to now take over the story. Yeah. Um, it's interesting that you mentioned earlier, Colm Kill's already in Iona. Yeah. Which means that his story's already sort of happened, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the copyright battle exactly. has already happened. Yes. The Did great... we mention that? I the can't, copyright I battle. I can't remember. I think but... it's fascinating. Yeah. I know I put it into the story yes. that I wrote about Colm Kill, Kill and the Monster Monster, Monster, Monster yeah, which yeah. is my version of that. Yeah, yeah. But it's true. You know, you think about copyright battles mm. as being modern. Mm. But here's one right back then. Yeah. And of course, he's uh, he's been uh, sent into exile for mm. starting an unnecessary conflict. Yes, yeah. What was it? He pinched his. He wrote a copy of his. Um, he made a copy of Saint Fenton's. Yeah, uh, Saint Fenton was his mentor. His mentor and yeah, the equivalent of foster father. Absolutely, in terms of saint teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there he is. He's he's um, made a copy of uh, Saint Fenton's uh, document, mm. and Saint Fenton says, "I want it back." Yes, yes. And what's more, I want the copy back. Exactly. Yeah. And Colin Girl says, "No way. I have yeah. my copy." Yeah. And then there's a judgment about to every cow its calf. Exactly. Isn't yes, yes. And so to every original, you know, the copy still belongs. But Colin Kill, he doesn't give up these things very lightly at all. So he decides, "No, I'm not giving it back." We're going to have a battle. And this is how the book became known as the Carthuck, of course, the battle yeah, book, yeah. you know. But uh, everybody gets dragged, dragged into oh, that yeah, battle. Yeah. And this, it causes a lot of death. Yes, yeah, it does. It's a major battle. And so he gets exiled. Yes, he does. And there, there's a few elements to that. He's supposed to go and try and save as many souls as he caused to be killed in this battle. Over and the he book. can never return to Ireland. Yeah, and again, there's something I... Couldn't give you a textual source. This is one of the things I remember sort of from school, if you like. Yeah, one of the, the hagiograph hagiographical. Yeah. No, I can't say that Hag word. Hagiographical. Thank you. <laughs> hagiographical. I yes. got mixed up with it. Yeah. yeah. Elements is this story, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. Yes, that Cullum Kill is not allowed to, to set foot on the sod of Aaron ever again. And so when he comes back for some purpose or other, he brings with him two clumps of clay from Iona and straps them to his feet. Yeah, so there's Cullum Kill going, look, look, I'm not touching the soil of Ireland. Look, this, this is pure Ionian it's soil lucky, here. It's lucky he didn't get set adrift himself, isn't he? <laughs> I know, yeah. Now, I surprising. know we've looked at him as a, a banisher of sea monsters, mm. but his life story is interesting, and we've covered most of it, but I mean, really, he's the son of a chieftain and he acts like one, oh, doesn't yes. he? Yeah, Just yeah. to sum up his story. Absolutely. He was taught by this local saint, St. Yes, yes. He goes to a bardic university, yes. Clonard. Yes. He said that there were three 
roused thousand students yeah, there, which yeah. actually is a massive. It's huge. Considering how early this is. Yeah, this is one of the big universities. And what's uh, more, it had a reputation for training really good saints. I know, yes. This is, oh, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a saint. We well, need a lot of points for that. <laughs> yeah, but off you go to Clonard there and see if Fenton likes you. Yes, it's, you know, we'll only accept, they only accept the best there, yeah. so you're going to have to really work hard on your sainty leaving cert. Yes. But he even, and then he even has a gap year. Yeah. <laughs> and he's aiming to go to Jerusalem this yeah. gap year, or at least get to Rome. Yeah. But he doesn't make it because they want him back again. Yeah, it doesn't make it further than France. Yes. And he's always described as big, strong, and heroic. Yeah. You know, and uh, a terrible nemesis of sea monsters. Of course. Yes. And it's a great story. Yeah. But yeah. it's not sort of terribly historical in saint terms. No. no, but also it's not necessarily what people think of now as a saint, as, you know, someone who is peaceful and, and very holy oh, he's great and fun, all though. the rest of it. Yeah, yeah, he's a very real character, yeah, I think. Yeah, and he gets know? thrown out of Ireland yeah. for causing battles. Yeah. And clumps over 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 France and yeah. does all sorts of things. Yeah. But it's interesting, what I think I, I was interesting is the way that the monasteries seem to be taking almost taking over from the Bardic schools. Oh, I think so, yeah. They're sort of like, you know, you're a saint or a poet. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's one of the reasons that I think that there was such a big monastic culture here is that there were already these great centres of learning. You know, just think of them as, as universities, you know, and the, the poetic training colleges. And, of course, some of them specialised in law. You know, there were different law schools it's, around the country. It's actually quite remarkable what's yeah. going on. This is where you get your saints and scholars. Exactly, and yeah. Saints, and it's absolutely true. Yeah, yeah. Although some of them have got fantastic stories. Of course, yeah, well. yeah. But, you know, it does seem pretty clear there was a massive culture of specialised learning. Yeah, and what is clear and seems to be historical, mm. it's very much part of an Irish colonialisation of Oh, colonization of yeah. Scotland. Oh sorry. yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, that's the the Dalriada, who were a you know a, a Northern Irish group who went over and settled in Scotland. I mean, we also were trying to colonize Wales at the time. You know, this was all part of the Irish Empire. You know, and it was so done. Effectively, he's just banished to the colonies. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> and uh, is not, as we read somewhere, mm. responsible for setting up the correct date of Easter. That no, is entirely but... wrong. That wasn't Colin Kill. No, but I think he's attributed with having known beforehand because one of the big things in his biography particularly Wrong that side of the country by Adam Norman yeah. is you know that he prophesied anything and everything basically and that's part of what stories means attached to him like moths in moonlight yes like I said about beyond the cool <laughs> yeah well to sum up what's happened with this punishment is that Colin kills uh, counsel via his mm -hmm. envoys Nedgus and MacRiagla is to select 60 married couples out of the men of Ross and put them into small boats to be set adrift. You know, I find it quite appalling in mm. some ways. I mean, given that setting adrift is effectively an execution. It is, yes. It's a bit like some of the Roman, and I'm afraid English, punishments, uh, like Roman decimation. Mm. You know, a um, legion is rebelled, yeah. so we kill one in ten. Yeah, yeah. And I'm afraid um, such a punishment once happened in our own town of Carrick on Shannon. Yes, yeah. When they picked 100 men, 50 were sent to one place, 50 were sent to the other, mm. and a random group was executed. Yeah, It's yeah. not uncommon, I'm no, afraid. No, it's, it's classic kind of imperial terror tactics, is. really, isn't it? You don't like a feeling that it's coming from Colin Kill. Yes, yeah, yeah. It's, it's an odd one, though. It mm. is an odd one. And then, what's more, the shore is guarded. Oh, yes. 
to make sure they don't come back. Exactly. Now, yeah. you were saying earlier on, if a boat washed ashore, well, yes. then God had said it's okay. Yeah, yeah. But here they actually make sure that the boats don't land Exactly, again. yeah, yeah. And this is presumably as well they're being set off from the West Coast into the Atlantic. And yeah. That's pretty unforgiving. It's you know, awful. I mean, you think of the coast of Donegal. I know, it's wild. wild. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they're not likely to set them adrift on the East Coast, if you think of it. Well, no, otherwise... Oops, we're just sail over to England. Yeah, that's how you get the Isle of Man, and you're not going to do that again. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it is, it's pretty final. Snegus and MacRiogo yeah, they decide to go home. Exactly. They're heading home to Iona, and they kind of, they're, they're on their way, and they sort of go, oh, well, why don't we have a go of it? Yeah. Why? Well, why not? That's a bit of a laugh. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. <laughs> the men of Ross look quite happy when we set them adrift. Yeah. So uh, let's have a go. Let's have a go ourselves. Yeah. Or maybe it's some sort of guilt for having um, taken part in this uh, particular punishment. Yeah. Or, or even just it. It does read a bit like they're testing their own faith and their own worthiness. You know mm-hmm. that. Well, you know we've just put them into the hands of God. We're supposed to have put our lives into the hands of God. So and let's do it test for real. it. Yeah, yeah. And they do. They do it for real. Yeah. And so, for whatever reason, Snegus and Matrilga set off on their very own Imrog. Yes. Well, so there they are, deciding they're going to put their fate in the hands of God, and they're rowing around for three days, and they start to get a bit thirsty. We would, wouldn't you? Yes, exactly. Water, water everywhere, etc. So they complain to God. (laughs) They kind of go, this isn't what we signed up for. (laughs) We're thirsty! Yeah. (laughs) But sure enough... Heaven provides, and they find this wondrous wellspring of fresh water which runs like milk, and their thirst is satisfied. And so then they, they feel decide... a bit more comfortable. Yeah, exactly. But is this um, this well? Is mm. it just a well in the middle of the sea, yeah. bubbling up, or is it on an island? Well, it doesn't say. But when we come to the next bit, it said on. It says on the next island. So we can assume yeah. that this is at the very least a little rock. It's probably like Rockall in the middle of the sea uh, with this wondrous well on it. And there is approach here is definitely Christian, I think. It, it is, yeah. Although, you know, as we've seen uh, within the sort of the non-Christian tradition, there's plenty of, you know, water that flows like milk or extraordinary nourishment from milk. Oh, and nourishment know. from a white cow. Exactly. It's particularly interesting, it, it, important. Oh, it, it is, yeah. We've come across this time and time again. You know, there's Bowen, of course. You know, even that wonderful story of the Ethna who becomes Saint Ethna and she'll only drink the cow from this wondrous, or she'll only drink the milk from this wondrous cow from the Holy Land of India. Um, <laughs> so it goes on, really. Yeah, but, but the, yeah, they're very important. But nourishing milk is yes, really important. Yeah, but here the cow has kind of been left out of yeah. it. It just goes straight from God into uh, their bellies. So, right, if they're not going to give up on their Imra either. No, this kind of strengthens their resolve. So they put their oars away and go, right, now, now we it's really the are. real thing. Yes, we'll go wherever the ocean currents oh God. or God decide to waft us. There's a lot of wafting in these stories. Yes, waft. <laughs> right, so they reach the second island. Now, yes. this is the one that I put into the opening story. Yes. Um, they're here, they are satisfied, it says, by the sight of fish. Yes. Yep, I'm satisfied. <laughs> That's, That's a salmon. <laughs> Even if it's a bit on the large side. Yeah. Let's move on. Yeah. No, the island has a silver fence across it. Yeah. And the salmon of size of bull calves yeah. jumping up a silver weir. Yes. And, and they... you should have seen the ones that got away. <laughs> but they do get a good meal. It says they that. do, yes. yes. Didn't they make do. that bit up. No, no, no. Um, and of course, I mean, salmon are sort of miraculous, if you like. I mean, the fact that sailors out into the middle of the Atlantic would have come across mature salmon that are swimming back to their own spawning grounds on yeah, inland rivers. They're, it is an extraordinary journey. Yeah, you know, it really is. They are extraordinary creatures. 
So it was almost a kind of a natural miracle, if you like. And of course, there's plenty of magical salmon. Oh, yes, we've met plenty of them before, whether, you know, all of these salmon of wisdom, they all are salmon of wisdom, really. Uh, but these are kind of big. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, the next island they come across is maybe a bit more what you might expect from an Imrov, mm -hmm. because this island is populated almost entirely by cat-headed warriors. Meow. <laughs> And they seem very sort of strange and ferocious and all the rest of it. But there's also one Irish adventurer who's the last of a band that has survived the rest, all being ha having been killed by, by the these cats-headed cats warriors. And uh, he prevents Snegus and McGregor from landing. I presume it's too dangerous, essentially. Mm -hmm. He comes down to the shore, he puts food on their boat, um, and then they swap blessings. End of story. And off they, off yeah, they pass. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting because obviously, you know, the cat-headed warriors, cats are, if you like, the last vestiges here of a, a well-known other world symbol. Yeah. The cat is always from the other world. Absolutely. Guardian, yeah. treasure and all sorts yeah, of yeah. things. Yeah, yeah. We talked about that quite a lot. Mm. Well, also, there is this business, because they're cat-headed, um, it's there's a known epithet for sort of warriors as, mm -hmm. is a uh, cathen. Uh, there's plenty of kunhens around your dog heads. You know, it seems to be one of those things. You know, a sort of powerful name. So it's know. really like um, they were pretty fierce warriors on yeah, this island yeah. who we couldn't talk to. Yes, it sounds a bit like a traveller's tale. Mm. I mean, the Irish had travelled some distance, hadn't they? Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's fairly widely accepted that Brendan the Navigator, um, who's Funnily enough, his journeys are not classed as Imrava, so he, he had a bit of purpose when he went on his journey. Even though he goes to all sorts of wonderful islands, exactly. like the Isle of Birds, and yeah. so many that we've recognised. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, but it's, the tale isn't classed as an Imrav. But, you know, it, he definitely had the Irish got as far as Iceland. Some say they might have got as far as Newfoundland. Certainly Tim Severin. Yes, so With yes. His, um, his, reconstruction. Know, his reconstruction in what was it, in the 70s, mm, late 70s. Mm. And the wonderful boat that he created, yes, yes. which is now at Kraken Owen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, I was thinking of that boat when I put the story at the beginning together yes. with the hide covers. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, he, he f seriously feels that every one of those islands could mm. be, if you like recognized as part of the journey exactly. to America. Yeah. It's an incredible story. It is. It's wonderful and well worth reading. Um, but yeah, I mean, after all, if you think about it, it could be that they met sort of some of the, the native folk from up the northern reaches and they had, maybe they thought they looked a bit like cats, you know? So they didn't have any mice. No. <laughs> Can you just imagine, you know, all they needed to do was hold up a ball of string. <laughs> Yes. Look, let's go on to the next yes, island. Yeah, next island, please. <laughs> right, so the next island has got more detail about it. Mm. They, they, there's a great tree on the island with a beautiful bird, and, um, or birds all over mm. the, the tree, tree with birds, and at the top of it a particularly big bird with a head of gold and wings of silver. Now mm. this bird tells them tales of the beginning of the world and it tells them the whole story of Christianity, yes, basically, yes. the birth of Christ, uh, the baptism, passion, and resurrection, it yes. says in the story. Yeah. But when he tells them the story of doom and the last day of judgment, mm. the birds flap their wings and uh, so that showers of blood mm. drop from their sides. Mm. And there's this really odd term, mm. communion and creature was that blood. Yeah, it's not actually creature. No, it's a mis... It is, a, well, at the time that, yeah, it's it's a bit of a mistranslation. Critter, it means something created, but in the sense of a reliquary or a ho very often a holy relic. So it's communion and a reliquary. Uh, is, blood is and relics. Blood. Yeah. yeah, the relics of the blood of Christ. Or exactly, the, yeah, exactly. That's what I think of. It yes. feels a bit like the Grail stories yes, that yeah. the Cruet. 
yeah, yes, that, yeah. that Joseph Arimathea brings yes. to Glastonbury. But it's that sort of quality mm, about mm. it. This, it's very. It feels like a picture taken straight out of an illuminated manuscript, doesn't it? Well, in fact, the, the, it's very close to a line from Thaler at Oingasa, which is the uh, translators of the martyrology of Oingas, like the Kaila Day, the Kaldi, mm -hmm. um, where he has, you know, a verse for each day of the year and whose saints, what saints uh, are to be celebrated on those days. But in the epilogue, when he's talking about, first of all, talking about how every word he's written is true and everyone who reads it will be blessed. Um, and lots of things about how, you know, God and the angels are great and the devil is bad. Um, and in all of that kind of praise, he does use the line is coven is crater. You know, and what we have here is Kovna August Kretra. You know, mm -hmm. so it's it's almost like a quote from Oingus, mm -hmm. um, which is a it's a very well crafted poem. You know, but to me, it's almost like a lost illustration. Yes, it's as if uh, when this was put together. Mm. Someone had seen a picture of a tree of yes. life with birds on, yes. connected with that the poem. Communion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, there, there's, it's very visual. Yes, it is. It doesn't feel like a real thing. Mm -hmm. It feels like describing exactly. an illustration. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, an iconic mm. in the proper sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the interesting thing is that um, when they've been told or given all this information, the the bird gives them one leaf from the tree. Yes. But it's a huge leaf, the size of a hide of a large ox. Yes. And it tells the bird tells the cleric to take that leaf and place it on Column Kill's altar. Yeah. And it becomes his flabellum, his liturgical fan. Yes. And apparently, when all the relics of Conkill were moved to Kells, yes. this went with them. Yes. And maybe it was something that was kept in um, the House of Conkill in Kells. Yeah. And there is, I read somewhere that there, some, there has been a suggestion that a picture of it mm. is on the stone at Kendonna. Right, yeah, yeah. I can't, I don't know. Yeah, the, yeah. the stone at Kendonna is really hard to. Yes, you know, it's it's quite weathered. It is. It's yeah, really yeah. hard to see. Mm. And there's all sorts of people who have looked at it in different lights yes. and will tell you that there's lots of pictures exactly. of it. Yeah. Might be able to find a picture, put it on the blog. Yes. Yeah. There's one bit I like, you know, where it talks about the birds singing. Melodious was the music of these birds singing psalms and canticles, praising the Lord, for they were the birds of the plain of heaven, and neither trunk or leaf of the tree decays mm. now that's oddly enough very familiar isn't it it is rather yeah it's very much like Manon's other world uh trees from which you get the the wonderful apple branch um there's also it's almost word for word describing what we talked about last exactly in the last um, podcast yes episode. yeah and once again you get these birds who are telling stories, you know, both mm -hmm. of the past and of the future, which, of course, as we've said before, was the role of the Moregan, you know. And the birds, the singing of the birds bring health and wholeness. Yes. Yeah. Just as they do in the uh, the other world. Yeah. Yeah. Birds so all of, the of these Christian are, world. Yeah. They're all very familiar images. And it's just that the birds now sing canticles and songs. Yes. They no longer sing of ethereal beauty and healing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's very interesting. Mm. But nothing decays or dies. Yes. It's, and you've also got the two aspects of the tree, just like Owen and the Lady of the Fountain, which mm. is a story of a tree taken from the Mabinogion, mm. a later story from the Mabinogion. Mm. And uh, then the leaves are shaken from the tree mm. and uh, to, to indicate doom. Oh, yeah. You know, um, when the, house, uh, the horn is blown, mm. the sound of doom, all the leaves fall from the tree and, mm. the, and the birds die. Yeah, yeah. But it's, again, it's a sort of visual picture mm, of mm. life and death of, doom yeah. and so forth yeah no it's very interesting mm. that one but it it doesn't feel like a real island it feels yes. like looking at like a, a vision yeah yeah exactly yeah. yeah so on to the next island yeah right so on they go anyway on their journey and the next island that they come to 
Oh, look, it's full of warriors, but this time they've got dog heads. Woof, woof. Yes. <laughs> and cattle manes. Oh, yes, the cattle manes, which is kind of funny, isn't it? Um, so, yeah, but again, there is a familiar figure amidst them, but this time there's a priest on the island, and he comes and meets them at the shore, and he gives them provisions this time, but says, no, this is a dangerous place. You can't come here. You should... Go on. Here's your food and drink. Go, yeah. Bye. Bye. <laughs> but it's interesting that once again, it feels that this is a dangerous but pagan place. Mm, mm. You can't land. Yeah. You can't go back. You can't land in a pagan place. Mm, mm. I, I just keep getting that feeling this is another world island, yeah. but it's no longer safe for you. Yes. Although it, there has been a sort of a development, if you like, that where they met a warrior before, uh, an Irish warrior, this time they meet a priest. So it sort of seems to be developing into... Moving away from other worlds yeah, even more. Yeah. What I want to know is this cleric, is he mm. sort of magic tin at God's command mm. or to get them the food or was he there all the time? Yeah, yeah. It doesn't really make sense. It doesn't make a difference. And of course, you mentioned yeah. earlier the dog head. Exactly. Like, like, like with Cachen, uh, Cunchen is, is a much more regular kind of epithet. In fact, um, the wonderful Dr. Philip Bernard House, when he was doing his PhD theory, uh, thesis, it was about sort of dog lore throughout mm. the Celtic mm. uh, cultures. And I know that he did a specific study on dog-headed figures, you know, in literature and, and uh, probably in artwork as well, you know. So it, it is quite it's a common quite well one. Known. Yeah. And we might as well go straight on to the next one. Yes. Because would you believe it? <laughs> the very next island has not cats, not dogs, dogs. but pig-headed inhabitants, <laughs> swine-headed. However, the interesting thing is that this island is rich with cereals. Yes. And it, they're being, you know, the cereals are all being harvested. Yeah, yeah. Um, in the, what I get the feeling is eternal summer. Yes, It yeah. talks about the the, the, the the island is rich and mm. it's always There's a continuous harvest. harvest. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I suppose pigs, you know. Yes, they're very much, again, otherworld and sort of underworldly creatures. And when we come to the voyage of um, Wildoon, there's a, a wonderful description of an island which has fiery underground pigs. And again, it has a miraculous tree on it with wonderful mm. fruit that can sustain you for however long you like. And during the day, the birds eat the fruit. And then during the night, the pigs come up from underground and they eat all the fru fruit on the ground. But the ground is also fiery hot so that they can't go and sort of walk on the island to try and get uh, to get the fruit themselves, the, you know? Up the mess, yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, you know, we have these uh, other world, underworld pigs. Um, in Irish stories, they're often a, a bit of a plague. You know, you've got yeah. the magma crib of plague. Yeah, and... except in the Welsh, where they may represent wealth uh, and yeah. renewal. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. You know, there's a cattle, we have a cattle raid now, there's a swine raid. Yeah, you know, yeah. Pig raid. Yes, yeah. And I don't know, I find this one slightly redolent of Circe's Island, Odysseus. Yeah. You know, it makes me almost wonder whether some scribe somewhere has confused Circe with Ceres. Yes. <laughs> yeah, I uh, wonder about that. So yeah. you get the cereals as well as the, yeah, the pigs, yeah. I just, I know, there's no, no proof of that. No, it no, may no. be linguistically entirely wrong. It yeah, but it does have that kind of association, doesn't it? Or yeah. is, do you think, more likely the reaping connected with the harvesting of souls? I think that it's probably got both in there. I mean, we, yeah. you know, we've seen the importance of, you know, the agricultural cycle within... I the Irish. I just don't feel it because it's constant mm. summer. Yeah, yeah. And uh, that's very other world. Yes, yeah. it is, exactly. And yeah, so I think it's both that kind of other world, summerland, and yeah, the reaping of souls. Well, after all of these, you know, wonders and sights and, you know, bizarreness, they finally come to an island which has something a bit familiar. They can hear this wonderful, melodious singing 
coming from the island. And as they approach it, they see that it's women who are singing what they term a Sheehanon. Yeah. And the clerics recognise that as music from Ireland. So they know that these are Irish people who are singing to so them. So what is this Sheehanon? Well, it's a very interesting term. It is definitely a sort of a musical term that seems to be a strain of vocal music. Um, it comes from Sheehan, which is any kind of prolonged sound okay so that can be sort of it can be a humming or it can be you know a a cry or you know even whirring and Some things sort like of that chant. Mm. well it certainly seems to be it's it's melodious it's often um sort of paired with terms like thirds which is a, a drone mm -hmm. you know a droning sound so it could be some kind of you know non-verbal musical singing but um, it's lost effectively well yeah i mean there's there's only so much because there was never any kind of musical notation from the early irish stuff um but it does seem to be a specific genre there were lots of genres of, of music and very little language around dance what interested me is that when i was looking at the sort of the dictionary ent entries for she and all they were nearly all uh, attributed to women mm -hmm. so it may have been one of the the female forms of singing so um so this means then that the clerics recognise them. They're made welcome by the women and the women say, well, let's all go to the house of the king and you'll be made welcome there. You know. So once they go to the house of the king, mm. um, they sit down and the king goes, um, oh, you know, settle down. Where'd you come from? And yeah. they go, we come from Ireland. Yeah. And they go, well, so are we. <laughs> the two monks go, oh, we're from Colm Kill's community. Mm. So the others go, and yeah, and how is Ireland? And they particularly ask, and how many of the sons of Dovnall are still alive? Yeah. <laughs> well, the cleric goes, well, you know, three sons are alive, uh, but uh, of course you probably won't have heard that Fierke, son of Dovnall, fell by the men of Ross. Oh, it was terrible. <laughs> and he tells them the story and how 60 couples of them yeah. were set on the sea. And he tells them the whole story. Mm. So then finally the king turned around and says, well, I've got something to tell you. <laughs> it is I that killed the son of the king of Tara and we that were set on the sea. And well for us was that. For we should abide here till the judgment shall come. For good are we without sin, without mm. wickedness and without crime. Good is the island wherein we are, for in it are Elijah and Enoch and noble is the dwelling wherein is Elijah. Um, you're going to have to help me out a bit here because um, I really know nothing, uh, particularly about the Old Testament. So w what is the significance of Elijah well, and Enoch? Is, well, Enoch, first of all, mm. is one of the great patriarchs who mm. were the ancestors of Nor. Right. So he's one of the great ancestor figures, a mm. bit like Delvoith, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really one of the old granddaddies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, except that he's interesting because he didn't, most of them live like Methuselah, yeah, 900 yeah. years and so on. He only lived for about 350, 360 years. Oh, stripling of a lot. I know, he was so young. <laughs> and then he was, uh, because it was, a, there's various versions in the Judaistic, mm. Judaic, Judaic and uh, Christian traditions, mm. the, but he was translated up to heaven directly. Right. Some say because um, the, 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 the land had been taken over by demons, mm. there were various reasons. Mm. Maybe, you know, he was either, in some ways he was a man who, 
did wrong and have mm. other versions. He was a great saint. Was, yeah. But anyway, it doesn't mm. matter. He was actually translated directly to heaven. So taken bodily rather yes. than dying. Okay. Transmogrified. Yeah, I yeah. Prefer, but that means he was translated into something weird. Yes. <laughs> um, but anyway, and Elijah, who is possibly the greatest prophet mm. of the Old Testament in, in some ways, mm. he was a wonder worker. He was a great supporter. His name means, um, you know, my God is Yahweh. Right. Yeah. And he, the great stories about him are he did things like, um, confront the priests of Baal and mm. go, you oh, know, yes. we're both going to call down fire from heaven and the mm. priests of Baal, they all they, they tear their clothes and cut their arms, which you're mm. not supposed to do in the in the uh, Judaic tradition. Mm. And uh, finally, nothing happens. Mm. So Elijah gets all these jugs of water and tells them to drench the altar. Mm. And then fire comes down from heaven and it burns not only that, it burns the altar, mm. it burns the stones of the altar and it yeah. burns the priest of Baal as well. Of course. Right. And he's really pleased with all this destruction. <laughs> yeah. There's loads of other yeah, stories. Yeah. He's the one who has to meets God in the wilderness with mm. a small, small, quiet voice. Oh, yes. God is not in the earthquake. He's not in the fire. Mm. And finally, he's, it's not the burning bush. That's mm. a different story. That's mm. Moses. Uh, and then finally, he's translated up to heaven in this okay. great chariot of Oh, fire. the chariot of fire! Yeah, 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 yeah. he's the original chariot of fire yeah. man. So he's quite a character. Yeah. He also appears at um, um, the Transfiguration of Christ, where right. he's standing on one side of him, okay. and the, the apostles see him. So uh, he's right, an yeah. absolutely major figure. Mm, is the mm. point I'm going to make? Yeah. So they're claiming to, that they've got the most venerable Christian prophets and mm. wonder workers possible. Yeah, yeah. On their own. You know, if you're not yeah. going to actually have Christ, which would be a little bit yeah, awkward, yeah. <laughs> they've got the nearest thing. They've mm. got the top men. Yeah. Well, it, it does seem to me a bit as though, like, particularly what you're saying about them being translated bodily into heaven, that's almost like the role that, you know, Nera or Oshin would mm -hmm. play and even Mananon, that, you know, that these are people who have come from this world, but have ended up in the other world sort of as themselves without dying, you know. So mm. it almost seems as though that's the place they're taking in this story. Mm. They are of you the know. undying world. Yeah, yeah. And yet you've got this weird thing that they are, therefore, that this is the secret place, mm -mm. the undying island. Yeah, yeah. Where they're offshore. Mm. And, uh, you know, but, so the men of Ross are claiming something really huge. Yeah, know? yeah. Absolutely huge. Yeah. And no wonder that Snegus and Matril are kind of impressed. They are, yeah. They, they, can we go and see him, please? And they go, Sorry, Enoch's busy. No, you can't see Enoch. He's hidden away until the day of doom when yes. he will return in the great battle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so again, this is familiar as well, mm, isn't mm, it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But, uh, oh, there's something else, mm. isn't there, that they, they have another prophecy to make. Oh, yes. There's this wonderful description that on this island is a great lake of water and a great lake of fire, and that these would have engulfed Ireland long ago, mm -hmm. except that St. Martin and St. Patrick had been praying on behalf of the people of Ireland. That's now, the only thing that's kept them back. Now, St. Patrick, yeah, but St. Martin is quite interesting yeah. because he's really a sour saint, isn't yeah. he? Yeah, well, I mean, Martinmas is, what is it, 11th of November? Something like that. Which it would have been old Samhain, you know, in, in the Julian calendar. Um, and there's some very interesting... Um, 
traditions associated Martinmas with Martinmas. Martinmas is quite important. Yeah, yeah. And of course, it was a time for, for eating goose. You know, it was very much associated with geese, wasn't it? Yeah. And also, it was a time when you slaughtered your cattle, mm. well, certainly in England, yeah. for the winter. Yes. It was a time to prepare for winter. Yes, yes. So that's why I say very much mm. a sound said. And I have heard of uh, traditions um, whereby you take a goose or a chicken, if you don't have geese, and you sort of, you sprinkle its blood in the four corners of the house on Martinmas and that will protect the house for the winter you know so it's odd isn't it this yeah. reversal you remember when we talk about Nero mm. and uh, um, the, the lake of fire and the lake of water around mm. the houses that the corpse takes him to yeah and this lake of fire and lake of water represent protection for yeah. the house because the people in the houses have done the right thing yeah 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 whereas here they're threats here the, the the fire and the water are threats that need to be kept back so yeah it has been kind of turned on God said fire not a flood next time mm. that just came to mind the yeah. old uh, spiritual you know the, but the end of it's very much end of world imagery yeah yeah that the world has been destroyed destroyed by flood in yeah. the past and, and in the future. future by fire yeah yeah um so it's very much christian yeah. um eschatological imagery mm. but again we have this wonderful kind of parallelism and doubling between the the sort of native imagery and the christian imagery you know i don't think it's by accident that these are the images that that have made it into this tale yeah. you know because they do have that doubleness like we were talking about with mungan and, and yeah, Christ it, last it's time. still transitional mm. it's quite different here mm. uh, but uh, yeah i love that bit where they say we would feign see enoch Oh, yes. <laughs> it's a secret place till we shall all go to battle on the Day of Judgment. Yeah. They don't want to see Elijah in Jerusalem, just Enoch. Yeah, yeah. It, I think it's to do with ancestors. Um, the ancestral figure of your house is so important. Exactly, yeah. And that part of the great kind of medieval project of this country was to interlink the native genealogies with the biblical genealogies. And there's another thing with this. He's a sleeper, mm. a figure that turns up again and again in, in folklore. Mm. You know, um, that Arthur shall sleep. Until mm. the last battle, until, until he's, he's needed. needed again. Yes. Uh, there's the same stories about Fionn McCall yeah, yeah. in some places that he will sleep until mm. he's needed in the last battle. Yeah, yeah. And again, then now it's Enoch. Yeah. So again, these stories about the one who sleeps mm. waiting until in the magical isle. Yeah. And after all, Arthur, once yeah. it gets translated over to England. Yeah. In the matter of England, he's sleeping on Avalon. Yeah. In yeah. a magical island that doesn't exist. Yeah. yeah. You know, though that's hidden somewhere. Mm. Um, so it's it's quite interesting mm. that you've got this another one of these great images yeah, of yeah. the sleeper. Yeah. And now it's Enoch. So we get to the last island. Yeah. And this is the most Christian of islands mm. with a holy devout king. Yes. And there is a remarkable house with a hundred doors mm. and a priest with an altar at every door. Mm. And here they're not immediately sat down to a feast where mm. everybody gets what they want. The central celebration of the, their visit to this island is mass. Mm. The communion. Yeah. yeah. I find this image of the house with the hundred doors is really interesting. It's very redolent of things like the description of Dalderga's hostel, where mm. there's, I don't know how many doors there is in that one, but again, there's... It's a house of, with multi-doors. Exactly, yeah. lots of doors. And the doorways themselves are very important in Dalderga's hostel. And, and you know, standing half in and half out of the house is very important. There's also a, a nice episode in the Thoria of Dermot August Grania, when you've got Dermot and Grania running away from Din, and when they're in the forest, Dermot builds a house of seven doors, um, and they're laid under siege there, basically, and Dermot goes and opens each door, and behind about half of them are other Fionns, you know, Fionns who are not Fionn McCool, but behind each of them is someone from the Fianna saying, you know, you have to run away, you have to run away, Fionn's going to kill you. It's really uh, good image. Yeah, and of course, 
Fionn himself is behind the seventh door and goes, I'm going to kill you. Yeah, got you. <laughs> Uh, it sounds know. like a bad dream, that one. Yeah, it? doesn't it? It also reminds me a little bit of the place where, in the Welsh story, mm. Bran's miraculous head was held. And yes. I think that was Seven Doors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they yeah. opened one each, you know, and then when they, the final was opened, mm. the, 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 the spell was broken. Yes, yeah. And then they had to had go to move on. Move on. Yeah, And yeah. take the head to the Tower of London. Yeah. Except, as, as you said, rather than here in this house, people being given what they like best to eat and drink, that's been replaced by the communion ceremony. You know, mm -hmm. so the cauldron of abundance has now changed into, you know, the communion cup of wine. I was going to say it's a sort of almost a transition from cauldron of abundance um, to grail. Yes. Yeah. And if we, our feeling is that the original cauldron of abundance was to do with the invention of beer. Beer, exactly. Yeah. Again, beer to wine. Yes. I don't know. So <laughs> I think we're, bo we're both beer drinkers, really. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever, the character of hospitality seems to have been... It's sort of lost, I think, yeah, from it, us. It's certainly know? different now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, in the wake of all of this, you know, sort of pious hospitality, if you like, um, the king offers a prophecy to mm -hmm. Snegus and Macriagla. Um He warns that uh, half of the island of Ireland will fall to a foreign invasion. Mm -hmm. And the reason that they will lose half the island is because they've been neglecting their duties to God. <laughs> uh, he also says to them, to Snegus and MacGregor, they will get home. It'll take them, I think, a year and a month. Months, yeah. yeah. But they will get home safely. And that they have to bring this message that the people of Ireland have to be, pray even harder and They've even this more. this one before, haven't yeah, we? Yeah, yeah. For me, this sort of prophecy, you know, that, that you're going to lose half the island yeah. because you're not good Catholic. Yeah, exactly. It's really... <laughs> A bit odd. I know, yeah. But in terms of this particular text, mm. do you think it's referring to uh, the Viking invasions or mm. is it Norman? Well, I mean, it's more likely to be Norman because the Vikings were more just incursions and, and set up little settlements here thought, and there. Yeah. Whereas, you know, once the Normans did take, you know, the eastern and half the northern part of the island, you know, were under Norman influence. We, we know, yes. Yeah, yeah. Quite. And that leads into the plantations. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, we're still not far from the border. Yeah. So, you know, you can't tell but wonder, is this, you know, one of the many retrospective prophecies, like all the ones that are in mm. Cullum Kill's life story, you know, that... that uh, I'm presuming so. Yeah, that's what I would imagine. But, I mean, we know that the theme of invasion and the island being cut in half It's very old. It is a very old one, The yeah. two halves, um, yeah. Mug and Con. Mug and Con, or the upper half, the lower half, all those things. Mm. This is something that comes up again and again. So it's know? not it's not just that recent, but I think mm. here it might have been be, becoming only too true. Exactly, yes. It might yeah. have been, you know, been sort of informed by recent events of the storyteller. Yeah. And that is they're in love. Yeah, that's it. They they go home. Thirteen months later, presumably they do tell the the Irish to go and pray even harder. Um, it seems to be part of their uh, part of their job. Part of their job. Yeah. Right. Well, we were going to go back to the histories, weren't we? Yeah. And um, this is these a, texts as history. Exactly. Now I think this is a, a kind of an interesting, a slightly tricky question. It is. Um, because especially the sort of the the first translators, if you like, of these tales in the nineteenth century, um, they did treat them as bad history yeah know. almost as they were going to compare them to say the english anglo-saxon chronicles yes which are more shall we say regular understandings of yeah not but, necessarily accurate but. yeah yeah but there is i think that there's actually a different conception of history yeah. going on or maybe you know. they were um more influenced by classical history by exactly. roman writers yes and so forth. yeah they weren't accurate either but they no. wrote as if they were exactly but, exactly but i think that the difference is that you know you've got these stories such as the battle of magrath you know mm -hmm. um which connects up with entries in the annals mm -hmm. in terms 
of, you know, stuff that happens and people that die. And the Battle of Magrath particularly is mentioned in a number of different annals um, as being a 7th century battle. And could well be so. Exactly, yeah. yeah. But the thing is that I don't think um, we have the same conception of history being this sort of ball recording of fact. I think it was a much more creative endeavour you know, um, that there wasn't this same kind of separation between stories and facts mm-hmm. as we would think of now. It was your story that was important. Exactly. A and little bit like in the story of Beowulf, when yes. he stands up in the hall of Hrothgar mm. and they went, oh, tell us about yourself. And he makes up this incredible story about mm. what he could do. Yes. And this is what he is, yeah. as long as he can back it up. Exactly, yeah. So, but also that we've talked about before, how, you know, particular dynasties would be legitimised by having, you know, an other world ancestor. And I think that these kind of pseudo-historical tales... We're judging still, them. In yeah. A, we may be judging them in the wrong way. Exactly. But they're part of that same project of kind of using a contemporary political and social yeah, setup, yeah. but backing it up with mythology, that it's not about sort of factual history. Yeah. It's about sort of having other world ancestors <laughs> and you? having done all this strange and magical stuff. You know, I was just thinking the Plantagenets weren't beyond that. Yeah. I mean, they claimed their legitimization from the demon bride of the Duke of Anjou. Yeah, Mind yeah. you, later on, that was uh, more likely to get one of them accused of witchcraft than anything else. Exactly. And I think that, you know, the difference is that there wasn't a sense that that was a bad thing to do here. You know, and in fact, it was a good thing to do. But I don't feel that it was a, a sort of a free-for-all, that you could just if you like, make it up off the top of your head. Mm. I think it's very likely because we have these sort of genealogical connections to specific other world figures that I would imagine each dynasty, each sept or their own people, special story. They had their own particular yeah. mythology that, that mm. gave them legitimacy. It's a thorny issue, isn't it? Is it? And it's not clear. No. You know, we talk about this battle. Uh, yes, it's written up. Mm. It probably happened. Yeah. It makes sense. Mm. But there's no way of being sure of any of it, is there? No, no, because there wasn't that sort of separation out. It wasn't as important to separate, you know, Mm. things that really happened in the past with the stories that we have in the present. And there are many histories that have been written up as straight histories. Mm. Can't be trusted anymore. Exactly. That's the thing, is that, you know, we are are perhaps too much on the other side of thinking that history is is this factual scientific endeavour when it's not. It's always being written in the present. It's always been a creative endeavour. Mind you, to this day, I mean, just when we began this particular uh, podcast, episode i bunnied the word high king. king yes and there's very good reason for doing that isn't exactly there? yeah there doesn't seem to historically have ever been one king who was over all of ireland there were always sort of regional uh hierarchies of mm-hmm. you know your reed tuatha the king of a particular tuatha and then you know there would be someone in the region who you know, had higher status than the others. And then, you know, within the regions, you have provincial kings and local kings. Yeah. But in stories, there tends to be this translation of the king of Tara to high king of Ireland. But that does not seem to have happened at any time in history. No, Brian Brewer is possibly the nearest. Yeah, but but he wasn't. No, no, exactly. So, you know, it's it's only really once we came under the uh, the English kingship. And then it was almost like it was retrospectively. Yes. Well, there has to have been a high king. Absolutely. So yes. the one who's in charge of this particular story, yes. the hero of this story, must, must be, be the high king. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, but it's an interesting one because mm. it's one of the things you think you know. Exactly. The, yeah. the high king of Ireland. Yes. And in fact, it's, it's, it's probably it's, the best bunny it 
words of barrier. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So that's the history. It's complicated, yeah. isn't it? <laughs> it is. It's it's tricky, I think, to, to try and just pull your mindset out of yeah. what we're told now that history is. Yeah. And we've only scratched the surface. Exactly. But yeah. It was yeah. worth a short discussion. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And I suppose we've got the same thorny issue concerning hagiographies, really. Yeah. Yeah. It, I suppose it's a similar process. It is, I think. You know, that, that yeah, you have the saint's life. I call him kills is a great example because we said he feels like this very real character. And yet his. Um, hagiography, particularly the one written by Adavnon, is essentially a series of miracles and prophecies. Mm -hmm. You know, that each chapter is, and then he did this miracle and that proves that he's a saint and next he made a prophecy and that they came true. That monster yeah. and you know, that proves that he's a saint. Yes, but at the same time you get the idea that there was this historical figure who led a particular movement within the church and established these historical monasteries. Oh, certainly, I think it would be hard to say that you didn't believe that Colin Kill ever existed. Exactly, He's yeah. very solid in the landscape yeah, and yeah. in history in that sense. Yeah, yeah. But nevertheless, his hagiography is full of these wonderful, you know, miraculous absurdities, really. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great story. Yeah, yeah. And it is very much um, part of that process that we find in other parts of medieval Irish literature whereby they're taking a native tradition or, you know, sort of remembered people and weaving them in to the Christian tradition. So, you know, this is why we get Enoch and Elijah in this yeah, story. If, you, if you've got a, a wonderful other world yeah. of the ever-living ones, mm. which is of this world, yeah, yeah. Um, well, then you want the Christian one too, don't exactly, you? Yeah. And what's more, it's got to have magic powers and yes. prophecies and stuff. Yeah. Otherwise, it wouldn't be good. Exactly, yeah. So we want one that's even better. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it very much is kind of taking the attitude to the other world that was already there. But yeah, like you say, it's a Christian other world now mm. that they're mm. experiencing and that they're they're constructing. So it's a fascinating process. And I suppose Bran was a transition in a way. Yes, the Imran Bran we felt was very much transitional into the genre of Imran, but also very much a sort of a non-Christian text mm -hmm. that begins to get Christian interpolations. And in fact, I've been, you know, working on the poetry for the Imran Bran, and a lot of those issues we discussed mm -hmm. last time, particularly about the, the closeness of Mungan and Christ, there is a native glossator in that mm -hmm. text um, who is forever trying to clarify that it's actually Christian, mm -hmm. you know. So there's one where um, there's a phrase about a view over a wonderful woodland, mm -hmm. um, but the uh, native Irish sort of glossator has mistranslated woodland as a lord and because it's a beautiful lord he has to put in a gloss that this is the prince oh, of heaven yes yeah you know don't, don't, don't get me wrong yeah um, you know I, i'm not thinking pre-christian here yeah don't worry this is christian it's yeah. all right exactly yeah it's, yeah it's as if it's got to be justified yeah you can still go on using it exactly yes yeah, yeah. and so what but what we have with snaggers and, and mcgregor i think is it's more firmly within the christian mindset but it hasn't by any means, yeah. got rid of all that sort of non-Christian other world Yeah, you idea. can sort of, it, it has, Snegus and Magrielga has crossed that line. Mm, yeah. But you can feel the ac active appropriation of pre-Christian elements yeah. into this post-pagan world. Exactly. Yeah. And we'll see where we're going next. I yes. think we now enter next into a even more Absolutely, yes. uh, post-pagan Christian Yeah, text. Yeah, and a wonderful sort of parable of good and evil, I think. Yes. You know, it's, it's great fun. Anyway. Yeah, suddenly uh, Imrov meets, um, how do we put it, uh, Parable and, uh, and Dante's Inferno. And with Dante's Inferno. <laughs> so that's for next time. Yeah. <laughs>
Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.